Well, if you would, I invite you to take out your Bible and type to or turn to Hosea chapter 1. Hosea chapter 1. If you're unfamiliar with where the book of Hosea is, uh, fear not, you are not alone. It's near the end of the Old Testament. It's immediately after the prophetic books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. It's right after Daniel. And uh, no shame if you happen to use your index or table of contents uh, to find it. But as you're flipping there, this is kind of funny. Uh, I heard someone say the other day they were, they were looking for Hosea. Uh, in the table of contents, but they just, they couldn't find it. They were looking and looking and looking like, I can't really, but where's Hosea? But, and then it hit them. They were like, oh, I was looking for Hosea with a, with a J, like Hosea. Um, so not the one with an accent over an E, not the one with a J. It's actually uh, with an H um, instead. So Hosea with an H. But if you're new, if you've been in and out, uh, we have been since the month of September, moving through the minor prophet books of the Bible. Uh, what are the minor prophets? Well, good question. Uh, the minor prophets are the 12 books at the very end of the Old Testament. And these books are essentially the recorded messages of 12 different prophets who lived during the kingly era of Israel. And, and by the way, they're called minor prophets, not because they are you know, prophets on the B team or second rate or less than or seminary dropout prophets. It's not because they had a minor role in the history of Israel. Uh, far from that. They're, they're called minor prophets because the books themselves are all just very short books of the Bible, as opposed to what we call the major prophets, which are longer books like Daniel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, uh, longer, longer books you have to read like in a setting. So think like major prophets are books that you would read. Minor prophets are more like blog posts that you can just kind of skim through real fast. That's kind of what we're looking at now. And so all fall, really up until Christmas time, we're going to be moving through and digging deeply into the minor prophets. And, and, and here's why. If you were here uh, all summer, all summer long, June, July, and August, we've been moving, we were moving through the books of First and Second Kings. And every Sunday we looked at, studied all the different kings of Israel, their lives, their legacies, and how they ultimately pointed to the true king of Israel, who would be Jesus Christ. Well, now we're following up that series by looking at the prophets who lived during that same timeline who were, who, uh, of the kings. And so prophets of which Hosea was one of them. So same timeline, same era of history. We're just looking at a different angle of it, not the kings, but the prophets who were during the time of the kings. So in September, we studied all month the book of Amos. The past couple weeks, we studied the book of Jonah. And that brings us to today where we're kicking off a brand new mini series in the book of Hosea. So who was Hosea, well, chapter one, verse one kind of gives us a little bit of insight into who he is and what he's about. Uh, we don't know much else about Hosea, but the very beginning kind of gives us a clue. So if you're there, if you found Hosea one, here's uh, what we do know. Verse one, I'm reading from the ESV translation, by the way. The word of the Lord, it came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Okay, that might sound like a lot of names, but, but couched in between those names is an important historical timeline of, of what's kind of happening here. So Hosea lived during the reigns of uh, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. Those were all kings of Judah or the southern kingdom of Israel, which also coincided during the reign of Jeroboam II, king of Israel, often referred to as the northern kingdom of Israel. And that, that timeline tells us really two main things. Uh, one is that in that time frame, the, the, the nation of Israel was doing very, very well. 
like very, very comfortable lives. There was a lot of luxury in the land. There was unprecedented for generations, finally, political stability. There was economic prosperity that they hadn't seen in their own lifetimes. So think like low interest rates, middle class, booming. The average family in Israel at this time had two homes, a summer and a winter place. But it was really short-lived, though, because here's what happens, and this is the number the second thing we know from this timeline, is that right before all of this prosperity, or right after all this prosperity and stability, that's when the nation of Israel gets sacked and taken captive by the Assyrian Empire. And so here's essentially what happened. In the midst of all of Israel's prosperity, in the midst of this unprecedented political stability that they were experiencing, people just forgot God. They, they rejected his laws, they forsook his word, and the moral fabric of Israel just started really unraveling almost as fast as they almost came to power. And so God brings judgment on his people to wake them up for what they're doing, but also to give them a promise to bring them back and to restore them into a good relationship with himself. And that's essentially what, what Hosea's life and ministry is all about. He lives in the middle of Israel's arguably highest of highs and right before their lowest of lows. So right in the middle of their prosperity, right before their captivity and exile. And so before God's people get taken captive by Assyria, God gives the the people of Israel a, a message through Hosea that they can readily hold on to and one that they won't easily forget. And it's a message of God's steadfast love, his pursuing love, his faithfulness to him, to him, And even when they let go of him, he's not going to let go of them. Even when they rebel and they reject him over and over and over again, he's saying, I'm not going to give up on you. Even when they walk through through deep valleys of pain and darkness, he's not going to forsake them, even though it might feel like it at the the time. And that's generally, by the way, the message of, of all the minor prophets. That's kind of why the minor prophets are relevant and timeless for all of us. It gives us hope and promises of, of God to us about restoration, even after, even in the midst of our rebellion against him. But there's one thing, though, that makes really Hosea's message to the people of God vastly unique from all other messages, from all of the other prophets, minor and major prophets. And, and it's this, God's message to Israel through Hosea, it wasn't just a powerful word. It wasn't like a letter or a message or a declaration as much as it was a powerful visual. Okay, so it wouldn't be a message of declaration as much as it would be a message of demonstration. It wouldn't be a written letter. It would be more so a motion picture lived out before them of what this message really is all about. See, most prophets in the Bible, they'd be known for their thus saith the Lord type statements. But the message that God would give to Israel through Hosea was not a a word that they would hear. It'd be a message that they would see tangibly demonstrated before them. God wanted to burn this image into their minds so that the people wouldn't quickly forget it, especially as they were on the cusp of walking through one of their darkest valleys going into captivity. See, sometimes we, we, we remember messages that are not just words. We remember messages that are full of more uh, um, aspects that, that show us that, that tap into our emotions, that tap into our sensations, which are metaphors, illustrations, video, not just audio. And so this message would be ultimately a demonstration of God's love for his own people, which always involves a plan for restoration for those who have turned away. And so I hope you've gotten to Hosea by now. I'm going to continue in verse 2, and uh, this is how it, it, it reads, and this is really how the message of God starts through Hosea to his people. Verse 2, when the Lord spoke through Hosea, 
The Lord said to Hosea, go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So note the text says again, the Lord spoke first through Hosea to Israel. Again, it's, it's reinforcing this idea that God's message was not just something that Hosea would say to them. It was a message that Hosea would do for them. And this is a message that would be a, more of a metaphor in action. And, and what was that message? What was the metaphor that he's beginning to play out before them? Well, it was namely God's calling Hosea to marry a prostitute. Well, why would God call Hosea to marry a wife of whoredom an unfaithful woman. It says at the end of verse two, it says, because it would serve as an illustration of Israel's spiritual whoredom, their own spiritual unfaithfulness to their own covenant relationship with God. Now, because this is a singles class, okay, just this is not God's will or a proof text to justify anyone that you want to date or marry, uh, someone who is not a believer. You got to say that this is not a proof text for a uh, flirt to convert or missionary dating. Uh, great commission is not really a good strategy for a great marriage. Um, don't do that. This passage is a an exception to the pattern of scripture. It is a descriptive one. It's not prescriptive. Okay. Sometimes when we read the scriptures, not everything is prescriptive. It's not always telling us to do this. It's a, a descriptive situation of God calling one person with one purpose in one scenario. Okay. That's it. And it ends there. This is not a prescription for all peoples and all situations. Okay. We have copious amounts of scripture to exhorting believers to have wisdom in the dating process. And at that very starting point of wisdom looks like dating and marrying only believers. Yeah, that's 2 Corinthians 6, if you want to dive into that a little bit later. But obviously, that's another conversation, I digress. But God is calling a man of God, a prophet, Hosea, in this situation to marry and to continue to be faithful to an unfaithful woman. Why? For the express purpose of showing the nation of Israel how God feels about his own people, whom he is committed to, whom he is faithful to, even when they are not faithful to him time and time again. Let's keep reading verse three. So Hosea, he went and took Gomer. That's the name of this unfaithful woman, the daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. All right, pause right there. Uh, Hosea picks out a, uh, an unfaithful woman in the community named Gomer. But the text says this, this is very interesting. She is a daughter of Deblame. Why is that important? Because usually when, when in scripture you're trying to trace family lineages, you usually invoke the name of the father because in a patriarchal society, the name of the father is the one that kind of carries the family name. Uh, why are they talking about the name of the mother here? Well, the, what the text is doing, it's, it's alluding in a very subtle way to Gomer's background. It, it's saying that she comes from a very unfaithful, very promiscuous background. Well, how so? Well, the name of the mother here actually suggests it. See, the name De Blame is an interesting name. It means double raisin cakes. De Blame, die Blame, double figs. That's what it means. Well, now, why is that important? Like, you know, is this like oatmeal raisin cookies, like fig newtons, double fig newtons? Like, what does this have to do with promiscuity? Oh, it's like, you know, maybe a slutty brownie type metaphor. No, not, not quite. Um, what's going on here? Just to give you a quick kind of history uh a lesson, track with me. Back in antiquity, the, the raisin cake was considered to be the primary premium aphrodisiac of the day. Okay, so in other words, if you don't know what that means, eating a raisin cake would stimulate sexual desire, so they believed. Okay, you know, a modern day equivalent of this would be like chocolate covered strawberries, champagne, and maybe Viagra. I don't know, something like that. 
And so that's what's going on here. Not to be crass. This is the scriptures. So going back to Gomer, scripture says that she is the daughter of a woman, not named Raisin Cake, but double Raisin Cakes. You see what it's getting at here? Now, I don't know if this is the mother's actual name or if this is the mother's name in the streets or her name by reputation. Seriously. Either way, the the messaging is clear here. Gomer's mother was not just any ordinary prostitute. She was the queen bee of the business. Everyone knew who this lady was. She had a name in society. And this is what's clear. Gomer comes from a family background whereby all she has ever known has been adultery. She's never had a picture, never had an experience of safe, fulfilling love. Never had a picture of marriage, never had a picture of covenant. And what God is saying to Hosea here is this. He's saying, Hosea, go and marry Gomer. Yes, that girl who's addicted to adultery. She's enslaved to adultery. In fact, it's in her DNA. That's all she's ever known. And it is ruining her. That's who I want you to marry. And you got to imagine Hosea is like, God, but like, why her of all people? Why her? And God is saying, likewise, Because your marriage to her of all people will be the best illustration between me and my own people, my own people of all people. They're addicted to spiritual adultery. In fact, it's in their spiritual DNA. It's all they've ever known. Some of them, that's all they know now. They're worshiping anything but me. And it's absolutely ruining them because they were made for a covenant in relationship with myself. See, Hosea marrying Gomer is God setting up a profound motion picture of his own relationship with Israel. How he's faithful, yet they are not. Yet he's he's loving them deeply and jealously, and yet there's no uh, uh, reciprocity. God gives grace and grace, forgiveness, forgiveness, and that they're just abusing that patience over and over and over again. And this is not just Israel. This is all of us. It's a picture of all of us as God's people. Words can only convey so much when you say words like love, faithfulness, grace, forgiveness. Those words kind of like resonate with us, kind of. But in demonstration, in relationship, it conveys much, much more, right? People say a picture tells a thousand words. Well, a motion picture really tells the whole story. You can see everything when it's in demonstration. That's precisely what God is doing here. Let's keep reading verse 4. So Hosea and Gomer, they get married, they have a son, and here's what happens next, verse four. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. All right, what's going on here? Okay, so the Lord is telling Hosea to name their son Jezreel, which would be a symbolic reminder a promise that God is a God of justice, that God is just. Well, how so? Well, back in 2 Kings 9, and you don't have to flip there, there was a king in Israel named King Jehu, talked about in verse 4 there, and let's just say his, his ambition to rule far exceeded divine commission. And, and he committed a lot of unnecessary bloodshed without the authority of God, without righteous intent. It was just all about power. And so Jezreel was a place in Israel It was a place of war. It was a place of bloodshed where he was becoming even more unjust, even more oppressive. And so in verse five, God says, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. This is where the Israelites would go to war. It was where the bow was used primarily as a weapon back then. 
And so at Jezreel, there was injustice, there was violence, there was oppression. And so God telling Hosea to name their firstborn Jezreel was saying, he was getting at the idea of, I'm a God of justice. But, but if you think about it, naming a child Jezreel back then, because we're, you know, we're English speakers, no one calls their son Jezreel. Naming a child back then Jezreel would be kind of like naming a child today, like Normandy or Gettysburg or, or Pearl Harbor. You wouldn't name a kid that everyone would know exactly what you were getting at. They'd be like, that's very bizarre. And so God is telling him, name your son Jezreel as a living, breathing reminder that I will avenge the wrongdoing that's happened at Jezreel. I am a God of justice. That's son number one. Let's move to verse six. So Gomer conceived again and bore a daughter this time. And the Lord said to Hosea, call her name, no mercy, for I will have no more mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. First of all, there's a lot of crazy names in the Bible. No mercy has got to be up there. I imagine naming your daughter one day, like instead of Emma Grace, it's like Emma, no grace. Or like instead of joy, or instead of joy, you name her joyless. You'd be like, that's, that's tough. You know, um, or like angel, you name her demon instead. Like that's kind of like the idea here. This is actually kind of funny. There's, there's a girl in our college class, actually, her name is Mercy Mata, which in Spanish means mercy kills. I love that. Um, It's great. Um, But why does God tell Hosea to name this child no mercy? Because again, again, it's representative of how God feels about his own people. He's like, Israel, my own people, they have gone off the ledge. They've gone beyond the point of asking for mercy anymore. It's not going to do them any good if I give them mercy. They've abused it already. So they need discipline. They need something else has got to get through to them because this is not, mercy is not at this point. So their daughter, daughter, no mercy, was again a living, breathing reminder of the judgment coming to Israel. Verse seven, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. Okay, by the way, at, at this point in Israel's history, they have that a divided nation I talked about earlier in the intro. The northern kingdom of Israel is just called Israel. The southern kingdom of Israel is called Judah. That's where Jerusalem is. And so God is saying, I'll have mercy on Judah, the southern kingdom. I'll have mercy on Jerusalem. I will save them by my mighty hand, not their strength, not their resources, not their prowess or politics. Now, hold up. Are you like, well, well is God showing favoritism here? Kind of looks like it, doesn't it? <laughs> Good question. Um, no. And it's, it's, here's why, because God made a promise directly with Judah, mainly with Jerusalem, that a king, a Messiah will come through Judah. He will bring salvation through the whole, to the whole world and his messianic rule, his salvation would be a salvation that would not be accomplished by human effort, human merits, human strength. It would be by his grace demonstrated in weakness. So that's why we're going to get back to this, but keep moving. Verse eight. When Gomer had weaned no mercy, now she conceived and bore another son. So, okay, so, so far we have first son, Jezreel, symbolizing that God is just. Then we have no mercy, symbolizing the coming judgment of Israel. That's two. And now the third child, number three, is on its way. Verse nine, and the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. If you thought the naming couldn't have gotten worse, <laughs> this poor child really got the short end of the stick. His name is not my people, a uh, terrible name, but here's why. See, back then, um, 
what was happening is that the people of Israel, they were always priding themselves that they were better than or more favored than others or special and different simply because they were God's chosen people. And, and part of that is true. They were God's chosen people, but they're almost using that almost as if it was a justification, a right to do whatever they wanted without repercussion. You know, it was kind of like a reason just to be a spiritual brat. They were looking down upon other people and God's like, you're not my chosen people to look down upon other people. You're my chosen people. So you serve humbly and demonstrate my righteousness to other people. And you're not doing that. Think, think about it this way. Have you ever met someone who, uh, who comes from a very well-to-do, wealthy, very connected, influential family. And because they have that name in particular, they kind of just feel justified in doing whatever they want without repercussion. You know, it's like, oh, you know, I can drive 90 miles an hour in a 45 because, well, my dad's the district attorney and he'll see you in court, you know? And, and here's the thing. Any good, reasonable dad, right, would, would respond to their child's stupidity and sin and be like, son, there's only so many times I can bail you out. There's only so many times I can give you mercy, but eventually that runs out. There's no mercy left. And everything else you do beyond that you're just ruining the family name. And, and so even, even though you're, you're affiliating yourself with our family name, this isn't going to just all of a sudden save you from your dumb decisions. This is kind of what's going on here. Imagine that times a thousand where God is like, yes, you are technically my people, but you have gone so far away from me. You've rebelled me so much. You might associate yourself with my name, but all the stuff that you're doing, I do not associate myself with you. You know, this is this is a profound indictment to our modern day church, to all of us. See, especially in Texas, so many people they associate themselves with the name of Christ, with Christianity. You know, like, well, my parents were, were were they grew up in church. I grew up in church. I mean, I'm not a Buddhist, so like, what else am I? I'm a Christian. You know. And meanwhile, God looks at a lot of this, and, and He's like, you might associate yourself with with my name, but I don't associate myself with with you. You are not my people. You say that I'm your God, but that's, that's really empty rhetoric. If we, when, we really pre, when we really press on it, it's really empty rhetoric. There's nothing there. Yeah, you might have grown up in church. Yeah, your parents might be Christians. Yeah, you might not be a Buddhist or a Hindu, but that doesn't make you a Christian. I'm certainly not your God. And sometimes he needs to say that, so it kind of puts us in our place. You know, Jesus would even say this about his own followers in Matthew chapter 7, where he says, in the last days, people will say, Lord, Lord, and I'll look back at them and say, I never knew you. I, I claim to you, but... That's, that doesn't mean much if you just claim a name. One of the sobering, most sobering verses in the entire Bible. We're going to get back to that. But what comes of this you know, kind of happy, strangely named family unit? Okay, Flip over to chapter 3. We're going to see. Verse 1. This is how it reads. Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. For they, though they turn to other gods... And they love cakes of raisin. In other words, symbolizing their spiritual adultery. They give themselves to that so easily. So, all right, what is going on here? Like, what happened to Gomer? Right? Like, is this like round two? Another another woman? Who? What's going on? All right, if you look back at chapter two, um, you'll see that this is not another woman. It, it's the same woman. It, it's Gomer. The, the text doesn't use her name here. And scholars believe that it's actually intentional. Because it's implying that when she left Hosea, which was to be expected... When she left Hosea for another man, in her running away and being with another man, she loses her own identity. She loses her name. This is what's so interesting. In God's providence, the name Gomer 
means completion. The name Gomer means completion. So after running away from Hosea, after running outside of covenantal love, becoming an adulterer, seeking and searching for love outside of that covenant, she's not complete anymore. She's not Gomer anymore. She's not herself. See, this is exactly what all sin, all spiritual adultery does to all of us deep down. In a covenant relationship with God, we are there, only there, complete. But when we run to other things, when we turn to other things for our ultimate sense of satisfaction, security, stability, significance, self-worth, when we think we're gaining more by finding ourselves in those areas, we're actually gaining less. We're forfeiting the goodness that we do have, and we're we're becoming less than who God called us to be, less than who we actually are. We're forfeiting our God-given identity for something cheap and unstable. We're not complete. This is the love of God, though. It's nonetheless coming after us, even when we've continued to run away from him time and time again. And what we see is Hosea doing so here, that he's going to buy her back and redeem her. Verse 2, so I, Hosea, bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. In other words, Gomer's lover, who she ran away from Hosea to go be loved by another man, now that lover who Gomer ran to, now that Romer is evidently uh, done with her and put her up for sale. See, uh, by the way, this is another picture of what the nature of sin and our own idolatry does to us. See, all other gods, all other idols that we can give ourselves to, they might love us in the beginning. They might promise so much life and happiness and, and fulfillment, but those, those idols, those gods, they don't truly care about us. They don't truly promise life. Your idols don't love you back. They always overpromise. They always underdeliver. Financial security, a good thing. But if you live for it as if it is your ultimate hope in life, it doesn't love you back. It doesn't forgive you. Like they don't erase their debts. Romance is a good thing. It doesn't love you back. Romance doesn't forgive you. It's just, it's a thing, but it's not God. Your career doesn't love you back. You can give yourself to it 80 hours a week. It doesn't, it's unforgiving. It's not what you were made for. You weren't made for your career. You're made to work, but not ultimately to find your happiness and satisfaction and security and stability in it. You're never going to find it that way. And then after you failed your idols or your idols have failed you, which always happens, then you feel exposed. You feel like you've been hung out to dry like a slave. And then you hear that whisper in your ear. Well, who else is going to take me? Well, where else am I going to find this? Well, this again, and it's place to place to place or person to person to person or situation to situation to situation with no real fulfillment that ever takes place afterwards. See, when we run to things and other people to be for us what only God can be for us, we become slaves. That's a theme all throughout the Bible. When we run to things to be for us what only God can be for us, we become slaves. That's always how it works. And this is where Gomer is now. She's at a slave auction. See, at these slave auctions, those who were put up, to, put up for sale, they were often stripped naked so that all the buyers could really see what they were getting with their dollar, which is so terrible. Completely stripped naked, probably in front, in front of tens or hundreds of men. And as the bargaining for her and her body starts coming in, she hears another voice, a familiar voice, two shekels, three shekels, five shekels, 10 shekels, 12, 15. And she's like, that's, 
that's the voice of Hosea. Why on earth would he want me back after all I did to him? But Hosea steps into her situation, pays a price for her. It doesn't even matter what it might cost him. He does this as a sign of love for her, a sacrificial love. See, scholars say this, and we kind of miss this if we don't read between the lines. Scholars would say that 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley, that was a costly payment for Hosea, evidently. See, this is what they say. They say that the going rate for a slave in that day was 30 shekels. And if he only paid 15 and then also had to pay a homer and also had to pay a lethek of barley, what's, what they're saying here is that Hosea had spent all his shekels and now he's giving up all of his other possessions and liquidating them so that he can afford whatever it takes to purchase her out of slavery. He's given up all that he has. But again, this is to show the sacrificial, costly love that God has for his people who keep running away. Verse three, and I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So I will also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. In other words, Israel, they're gonna be taken captive by Assyria. They're gonna be led into slavery because of their spiritual idolatry. But God will pay what it takes to get them back. He will reach back out to them in covenantal love. He's not done with them yet. Verse five, afterwards, the children of Israel, they shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So there's this promise of hope outside of their rebellion, nonetheless. We're gonna be in the book of Hosea for the next several weeks, looking at the beginning of the book only just today. We can see that Hosea, in general, is all about how God shows unthinkable love, like scandalous love and grace to people through the imagery of Hosea pursuing Gomer in this brutal situation. It's a picture that his redemption and our restoration, it'll it'll always come to pass, even in our rebellion, if we are truly his people. And so what is, what are these chapters that we just read? What does it teach us, you know, as modern day believers? Well, I think it communicates three main things uh, that we can see about our relationship to God and God's relationship to us. So if you're taking notes here, here's number one, real quick. Number one, our relationship with God is like a marriage. Our relationship with God is like a marriage. See, God could have picked any other type of relationship dynamic, especially to, to show how he relates to his people. And yet he chooses marriage as the way to relate to us most. All throughout the Bible, God calls his people, my betrothed, my bride, Ephesians 5. We'll be married at the very end of time, Revelation 19 and 21. So primarily he describes it as a committed, love, covenantal relationship. Marriage, by the way, is the most intimate relationship on earth. The relationship that you will one day have with a spouse is fundamentally different than any other relationship you can have with, with anybody else. It's the case in terms of its commitments. You're not committed to anyone more than you are to your spouse. It's, it's depths, it's sacrifices, it's knowledge, conceptually and experientially. Longevity, you'll probably know that person more than any, longer than anybody else. Pastor Tim Keller says it this way. He says, you know, in any other relationship, you can kind of hide. He says, you can hide things from your boss, You can hide things from your parents. You can hide things from the government. You can hide things from your closest of friends. You can hide things from your children. You can even hide things from yourself. 
but you can't hide things from your spouse. That's essentially how God is identifying himself in that relationship with us. Incredibly different from every other religion, what they believe about God on earth. God of the Bible relates to us in a marriage. Aside from the storyline, there's one main detail woven through this passage that really reflects this idea of God relating to his people like a marriage. Namely, it's the, the use over and over and over and over again over the name of God being used here, which if you look in your Bibles, it's, it's only Lord, L-O-R-D, all caps, <clears throat> Lord. Have you ever wondered what the name of God is, by the way? You're like, wait, is, I thought the name of God was just God, you know, um, not quite. <clears throat> um, God actually has, God is like his, his general name. God actually has many names all throughout the scripture. And each name reflects and emphasizes one of his attributes. And, and they use it in certain situations where that attribute is particularly relevant. So for example, um, in Genesis 1, God is called Elohim or God of power, a God of strength, creative, uh, has creative ability. Or Adonai, is referencing God as master and ruler, having authority over all things, or God as Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord, my provider. It's emphasizing God as a, a provider and giver to our needs. In our English Bibles, whenever we see the, the, the word or name Lord in all caps, L-O-R-D, that's referring, whenever you see that, it, it's referring to God's personal name, which is Yahweh, Yahweh. Yahweh is God's most sacred name. It's his most personal name. And what it means is that he's a God of covenant-making, covenant-keeping character, who's steadfast in love, who's steadfast in faithfulness. Covenant means absolute commitment. You know, there's only one institution on earth that is a covenant that I can think of, and that is marriage. The whole idea of marriage, everything, all of its goodness, essentially, if you read scripture, it derives as a principle out of God's own name, and character. The deepest aspect about God's covenantal character is where the whole idea and institution of marriage, it's where it comes from. By talking about marriage, you're invoking the name of God in a sense, because it's all about covenant. In the verses that we just read, the name of God, Lord or Yahweh is used 12 different times. Every single time this name in particular is used, and it's to convey the idea that our relationship with God is like a marriage. All the, all the Lord's being used there, it's like, a, it's like a thread woven through these chapters to remind our people, he's a covenant God, he's a covenant God, he's a covenant God, be a covenant to her. And this is what looks like when you follow God, you become a covenantal person as a result. Marriage, by the way, it's, it's a beautiful thing. I'm sure probably some of y'all have been through marriages this summer, or not y'all, but been to marriages, this is a singles <laughs> class, been to marriages or weddings this summer or bachelor parties, or bachelorette parties. Marriage is a beautiful thing. One man, one woman, one lifetime, two lives pledging to be to one another, joined as one unit, okay? People love weddings. We love weddings. We love to celebrate marriage. We love to celebrate covenants. We go to weddings, and we will travel across the country to be there. We'll take off precious PTO to be there. But think, think about it. Why do we love weddings so much? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, you could say like, well, you know, we love weddings because we love the people who are getting married. And that's, that's true. Or you could say, we love the feeling of weddings. That's why I love weddings so much. But I mean, yeah, it, it's heartwarming. Or you're like, well, you know, we love weddings because we love getting dressed up and we love the celebration and the venue and the band and, and the reception and the flowers, all that kind of stuff. And yeah, that, that's all fun. 
Or you're like, well, we love weddings because it's the only time where you can be with all your closest family and friends at one time. And that might be true too. Here's the thing though. Uh, All those things are true separately. All those things are true together, absolutely. But, But here's the reality. We can celebrate the people that we love. We can love the feelings of these great events. We can love the flowers and we can love the celebration and the venue and all these things dressing up. We can love experiencing a reunion of sorts, but we can love all those things, experience all those things in contexts that are not weddings. You ever thought about that? So then why, why do we love weddings so much then? It's because weddings, the celebration of marriage, perhaps like anything else strikes a chord deep down inside of us. See, scripture would describe weddings in a profound way. It says that a wedding or marriage, the pledging of two to be joined as one, that that idea is woven into the deepest fabric of reality because it comes out of a derivative of who God is, his character of being a covenantal God. In scripture, it starts, the true story of the world starts with a wedding, Adam and Eve. Jesus's first miracle happens at a wedding, not a coincidence. The very end of time, there will be a final wedding between God and man, heaven and earth. Marriage is not a small thing. It's, it's deeply meaningful. It's getting at something deep. It's, it's ultimately a covenant. A covenant means you pledge your life to someone else completely, unconditionally. A covenant is different, by the way, from like a contract, okay? A contract means like, well, you know, there's, there's terms and conditions. A contract means, well, there's, there's stipulations, there's specifications here means there's ins and outs, you know. Uh, a contract is for plumbers and technicians, Verizon and AT&T. It's for clients and business partners. You know, like if there's, if it's not really working out, well, then you can back out when you want. If there's a better option on the table, well, that's actually another opportunity for you. That's a contract. It, marriage is not like that. Marriage is a covenant. And a covenant means no terms and conditions. It means unconditionality. A covenant means no stipulations and specifications. It means like complete surrender to the other person. No ins and outs. It's always and forever. A contract is is 50-50. A covenant is 100%, 100% from both parties. And scripture tells us that is the type of love that we were all made for. We all long for that type of love. And whether you find that on this side of earth, you know, being in a actual marriage with another uh, person, or you don't, we still we're made to experience that ultimately, eternally, perfectly with God, who can perfectly love us with unconditional love, absolute acceptance, ongoing affection, and that never, never changes. That covenantal love is what we're made for from God, with God. That's, that's what it's all about. And so when we go to weddings, celebrate marriage, that cord is pulled deeply in us, reminding us of the deepness of who we are and what we're made for. Our relationship with God is like a marriage, number two. Our relationship with God is like a bad marriage. <laughs> It's like a marriage, but it's like a bad marriage. Oh, and by the way, uh, God is not the problem in this marriage. (laughs) We are. The problem is not how God treats me, views me, responds to me, commits to me. The problem is really how I view God, how I respond to his grace, how I'm failing to hold up my side of the commitment. And when when we see our marriage or our relationship with God like a marriage, when we see it through that framework, it completely reframes Everything that we do and understand in our relationship with God. Okay, follow with me real quick. If we saw God, for example, primarily as a judge, now he is a judge, but primarily as a judge, then sin would be 
a moral infraction. That's all it would be. If we saw God only as a creator, and he is a creator, but ultimately as creator, then that means sin is like a violation of his design. And it is that. Or, or if we only saw God primarily as a moral teacher, and he is that, then sin would kind of be like a, a more about education and practicality lived out. But see, here's the thing. If God relates to us primarily as a spouse, as a, as a groom, now sin has a completely different dimension. It, it's, it's now a personal offense. It's not just an infraction. See, Hosea, through Hosea, God is communicating to us what sin really is. It's not a misdemeanor. It's not a mistake. It's not like a timeout. It's not a ticket for our wrongdoing. It's adultery. That's what he's saying. And breaking the commitment that we have to God, putting ourselves, is, look, is to him, he experiences it as us putting ourselves in the arms of another lover. He feels that. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever, have you ever been cheated on? Right? Have you ever like, been with someone and they like, left you to go to someone else? Like That kind of pain, if you've ever gone through that, that is an unbearable type of pain. Like it's, it's worse and has a deeper dimension than probably any other pain that you can experience. Probably worse than even death. And, and God is what God is saying through this is he's saying that feeling, that is it. That's how I feel when sin enters the picture. When you rebel, that's the way that I experience. That's how strongly I feel about you. That's what sin does to me. Sin is a marital affair. Sin is cheating on God, looking for ultimate love, meaning, security, significance somewhere else. And, and, and you know why our marriage with God suffers? Because we don't see it that way. Like, the problem is, is, is we fail to see, when we fail to see God in marital terms, we just see him as a judge or a boss or a moral teacher. That takes the personal dimension of sin completely out of it. Like, oh, it's just a mistake. Or, oh, I messed up. Or it's not really that big of a deal. And, and then... No wonder, you know, our relationship with God would suffer like that because we only care about sin, what it might cost us. It's not, no wonder it's a bad marriage, right? Can you imagine being in a relationship with someone like that who every time they wronged you, they just didn't see it that way. They didn't see it as a personal offense. That's what God is connecting here with sin. It's, it's more than just a mistake. It's more than an infraction. It's more than just going against the grain of reality. It's ultimately a personal offense about to God. Marriage is... Our relationship with God is like a marriage. It's like a bad marriage. We can't heal this, mess, this marriage, but, but God can. Number three, what does God do to heal and help our marriage? What does God do to heal and help our marriage? So as we see in the story, right, like God tells Hosea to pursue Gomer over and over and over and over and over again, buys her out of slavery, renews his covenant with her. That's that story. But how does God like go after us? How does he pursue us? How does he buy us out of our own slavery, give us a new name, renew his covenant with us? How does he do that? Well, see, the, the Bible is, is one big story. And the, the story of Hosea and Gomer is like a microcosm of the one big story that God loves his people. We keep turning away and he's finding a way to bring us back. And ultimately, God's solution to bring us back is in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was compelled by covenantal love and came into our context. Jesus Christ is the tangible and the fullest expression of Yahweh, the name of God. The name of God isn't just a principle anymore. In Jesus Christ, Yahweh is a person of flesh and blood who demonstrates that covenantal love to us. 
doesn't just say, doesn't just say that he's committed. And all through the New Testament, Jesus, the epitome of covenantal love, he's hanging out with prostitutes and outcasts and the marginalized. He sees all the spiritual adultery of people, and yet he loves us anyways. See, the gospel is the good news that Jesus loved us and saved us and came to us, but then he also took our place of condemnation. He took our penalty so that we could be bought back and be redeemed into a right relationship with himself. See, when Jesus went to the cross, it mirrors this story because Jesus was taking the place of Gomer for her adultery. Jesus was taking our place for our own adultery. See, like Gomer, Jesus, when he went to the cross, he too was stripped naked. He too was fully exposed. Like Gomer, Jesus too was sold for pieces of silver. He too took that place so that he could buy Gomer back. He could buy us back. For Hosea, it cost him his possessions. For Jesus, it cost him his whole life. And in Jesus, God relates to us all like a perfect bridegroom who laid down everything for us. And see, when we view God through this lens of a passionate lover of our souls who will do anything to come after us, only that changes us. Only that changes our relationship with God, our marriage with God. When we realize that he did that and we deserved at least, that, that begins to change us in a way that we stop finding satisfaction, security, and stability, and cheap things that don't ever satisfy anyways. That view of God and that love is what heals us deep down. That's what changes us. That's what makes us whole again. That's what makes us complete, gives us completion like Gomer. It allows us to live in our God-given identity. See, on the cross, we see Jesus become the justice of God, Jezreel. And we also see Jesus become mercy when we really deserve no mercy. And he did that to buy us back so that we could become not just not his people, but now his people. He buys us back in that way. In that way. So where do you find yourself today? Right? Like, like where, when you think about God and your relationship to him, where do you really identify where you're at and where you think he's at? There's nothing more practical than for us to see God as a lover of our souls, to be overwhelmed by his grace and love over and over again. Donald Barnhouse once said this. He said, the pursuing love of God is the greatest wonder in the spiritual universe. When we see this love at work through the heart of Hosea, we may wonder if God is really like that, but he is. He is. Let's pray. God, thank you for the chance that we have to look at your love for us through the, the depiction of Hosea and Gomer. And we praise you that it's, it's even more than what Hosea gave to Gomer. You gave us your son, Jesus, as the ultimate proof of that. And so God, wherever we are, many people in this room are in different, relation, different spots in their relationship with you. I pray that you would give all of us just another reminder of your great love for us, your pursuing love for us, your providence over our lives, that you're holding on to us, that we'd hold on to that idea of that as well and your love. I pray this in your name. Amen.